Hey, Rachel. Hi. Let's play a game. I'm ready. This game is called Name That Environmentalist. The year is 1970. Here's the quote. It is my belief that when pollution is found, it should be halted at the source, even if this requires stringent government action against important segments of our national economy. Name that environmentalist. Could that be Stuart Udall? Incorrect. Uh, David Brower. Wrong again. How about... Richard Nixon or Lady Bird Johnson? Strike three, strike four. (laughs) The answer? Barry Goldwater. Really? I know, right? Who is the man takes a stand every time he can? Goldwater, Goldwater. Today on Edge Effects, we talk Goldwater and other unexpected environmentalists on the right with Dr. Brian Allen Drake senior lecturer in the Department of History at the University of Georgia and author of Loving Nature, Fearing the State, Environmentalism and Anti-Government Politics Before Reagan. I'm Brian Hamilton, and that was Rachel Gross, and this is EdgeFX, brought to you by CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment at the University of Wisconsin, Madison. Dr. Brian Drake, thank you for joining us here on EdgeFX. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate it. I wonder if you'd just uh, help us out just by retracing your intellectual footsteps a bit and letting us know what led you to become an academic historian and, and what brought you to this topic in particular. <laughs> well, it's, it's a long, crazy tale, and I will try to keep it simple. <laughs> I never intended to be a, an academic historian, honestly. I was, a, I was an outdoor educator and rolled in the sky in my 20s. I wanted to paddle canoes and go hiking for a living, which is what I ended up doing. For a while, I was living in uh, Savannah, Georgia, and I worked for a company that took people outdoor education oriented trips. I was, in particular, uh, the guy you would uh, contact if you wanted to take a canoe trip to the Okefenokee Swamp. Really? So, uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time. Uh, spent a lot of time in that place. Uh, when I became an academic, I was kicking around the idea. Uh, Again, environmental history of the swamp, but, but, but uh, Megan King Nelson took care of that. So. Yeah. <laughs> Make a long story short, the company I worked for ended up being better outdoors people than they were business people. We went <laughs> out of business. And oh. I decided to go to graduate school. Knowing <laughs> essentially nothing about it, I thought it would be, I thought it would be fun, which in, in retrospect is actually pretty hilarious. Hey, I got an idea, I thought to myself. Because I was a history major in undergrad, I knew a little bit about it. I said, I'll study the environmental movement. As a historical phenomenon, surely no one has done that before. <laughs> Path breaking research, absolutely. <laughs> and then, because we discovered there's a you know, 25 year <laughs> rich history of, of, of that, um, I managed to get into uh, study with Donald Worcester at the University of Kansas and, uh, for the PhD, and they don't turn down an opportunity like that. So yeah. I took it, and here I am. Yeah, the, the, accidental, the accidental academic. <laughs> Well, we're all the better for it. So to, so to jump, jump into, your, into your first book there, one of the most surprising contributions that it makes is to give this environmental biography of Barry Goldwater. Could you remind yeah. our listeners who Goldwater was and, and where he usually pops up these days? All right, Barry Goldwater is one of the most famous icons of 20th century American conservatism. He was maybe the most recognizable case of, of political conservatism before Ronald Reagan. He was five-term senator from Arizona, in 1964, he got the Republican Party nomination for president, running against Lyndon Johnson, where he was beaten within an inch of his political life. <laughs> <laughs> but he really is one of the godfathers of modern American conservatism and uh, a hardcore anti-statist, a hardcore small government guy. 
and definitely not the kind of person you would associate, at least at first blush, with any kind of environmental sentiments whatsoever. We tend to think about Goldwater as, as about as ideological purebred as they get. You know, we, it's sort sure, of... sure. I sure. You know, he's a cardboard cutout for both his supporters and his detractors. He's, he's an ideology attached to a, uh, a pair of legs, and that's about <laughs> it. And, you know, he really turns out to be more than that. And, and I'm a big fan of that. I love it when people fool you. I love it when historical actors surprise you and do things that they're not supposed to, and he, and he definitely does that, so... Yeah, I mean, when you, when you actually start looking at his opinions over time about environmental regulation, at least at the federal level, he's very difficult to pin down, it seems. And some of that's changed over time, and some of that is sort of his trying to look out for bringing pork home to Arizona, his home state. And then there's also yeah. some attempt, you, you say, to, to serve two masters, that he's trying to you know, appeal to environmentalism and appeal to what you call anti-statism. So in yeah. the end, was he, was he an environmentalist? Can we say that? Well, I, I think it was, you know, my definition of environmentalism is, is pretty broad and it's, and it's pretty personal, and, and essentially it's this. Environmentalist is someone who believes there are actually environmental problems. There are real problems caused by our lifestyle, and those problems merit action. It's, I suppose, a matter of debate what sort of action they require, but they are actually real, and they need to be addressed. And certainly by that standpoint, I would say very well, it's definitely an environmentalist. Many conservatives today, I think, quite frankly, they've abandoned not only the pretense of, of, of environmentalism, they deny that there are environmental problems. And he, he certainly did not do that. He, again, again, he believed that there were problems, he believed they, they required stringent action, sometimes even, from the federal government itself. How do you account for that? As the Republican Party and conservatism in general seems to have moved closer to Goldwater, um, they moved farther uh, away from this part of him. Why, despite his intense anti-statism, did he come to see that government is a necessary actor in protecting the environment? Yeah, exactly. Why was that? Well, boy, that's a good question. You would think after spending so many years thinking about this guy <laughs> that I would have the, the perfect answer. I'm not sure that I do. I do know that, that his love for nature, certainly his love for the Arizona desert, yeah. was sincere. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, some people have, have said to me, hey, well, I should go water this wasn't pandering. I have absolutely no doubt that he was not. It was, it was something they cared for a great deal. He was also, you know, he was a middle-class American, and mm -hmm. like middle-class Americans of the period, he, even though he never would put it quite this way, he wanted beauty, health, and permanence. Those things were important to him. I think they were important enough that they began to weigh against his ideology, which was equally sincere. I mean, he absolutely believed in small government and wanted to reduce the government's influence, the government's power, whenever he could. But then this other side hit, and so it's fun to watch him engage in mental and ideological gymnastics to try to balance those things. And he's not always successful. He was, uh, he could be pretty contradictory. His biographer, uh, Bob Goldberg, once told me in an email, he said, Goldwater can walk around just full of contradictions and never really come to grip with them. That was true his whole life, and I think it's certainly true of the environment. In the end, I don't know that he squared it. I don't know that we're going to be able to square it. I think I learned from this project that, that some things defy clean analytical categorization. Yeah. yeah. Reading it, it was it was hard to know whether, you know, maybe this is an immaterial difference, but was he an anti-statist environmentalist or was he both an anti-statist and an environmentalist and sort of had to oscillate back and forth? Oh, right, right. You know, it, 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 what, 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 it, it first came to shove and he had to choose. Right. What would he, what, what, yeah, but, that, but that's a good question because, you know, it really is a matter of a, a change over time. It kind of just depends on, on when you look at them. You know, if you had sat him down in 1970, mm -hmm. I would say that the environmentalist is going to trump the anti-statist. Fast forward 10 years when he's picking up on 
the Reagan revolution and Sage Rush Rebellion and yeah. things like that. He might have gone the other way. That's the thing I like about him as well is he's not a statue. Yeah. And, and he oscillated back and forth. I mean, his, his, his anti-statism is, is, is intense and it's personal. And it would be one of the last things he would give up if you had asked him to sacrifice the Grand Canyon for that, though. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is it fair to say, unlike some of the other characters that we'll get to in, in the book, that it wasn't so much that his anti-statism brought him to environmentalism, so much as that they were sort of dual, dual um, devotions of his. Yeah, I think I think so. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I think it, you know his environmentalism emerged despite his anti-statism. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that differentiates him from, say, Ed Abbey. I make the I make the argument in the Abbey chapter that it's Abbey's state, uh, his anti-statism. I think that leads into a particular kind of environmentalism. He sees environmental protection is is a way to restrain the state. Yeah, yeah. And it also seems similar to what's going on in Chapter 2. You take us into the surprising origins of the anti-fluoridation movement. And <laughs> when we think of opponents of adding fluoride to drinking water, we think mostly of people, you know, these are sort of the kin of the tinfoil hat crowd. Um, yes. But you make clear, I think it's fair to say, that, that you think that they, while they were wrong about the science, you seek to take them seriously and to situate them within post-war environmentalism. And what do we learn by doing so? Oh, well, that's a good question. I guess I, I will go on record here again. I've done this before, but I think it's important for me to point out that I'm not an anti-fluoridationist. <laughs> as you said, I, I, I'm aware of the weaknesses of their science, and there are things that I lay in bed at night and worry about before I found one of them. <laughs> but, you know, I, I was trying to take their concerns seriously, if not their actual critique. Just a quick story. One of the things, how I got into this is I was just writing a paper in one of my Ph.D. seminars, and I just was sitting in the archive University of Kansas, reading theory anti-fluoridation stuff just to see what would happen. I, you know, I'd seen Dr. Strange Love recently, and I thought, well, this could be kind of fun. Sure, And sure. the thing that went through my head was, my God, they sound like Rachel Carson. It kind of flashed through my mind, and I, and I, I thankfully I put the brakes on that. I said, wait a second, wait a second. That's really interesting. <laughs> Why do they sound like Rachel Carson? And sort of went from there. And, and, and what do we learn? I think we learn a, a few things. We learn, among other things, I mean, just how, how widespread this growing post-war environmental thing was, and in particular growing post-war concerns about contamination in its various forms. The way we think of, of, of pollution of the body in particular, I think we tend to, to associate that with industrial toxins, and mm-hmm. we tend to associate that with racism. Yeah, we right. tend to think of people who are working factories, or we think of minority uh, neighborhoods being subjected to undue amounts of these sort of things. And I was struck that well, essentially the same sort of sentiment was to be found in people who you would not expect they don't have a whole lot in common with the labor community or the or African-American poor communities, that sort of thing. I was struck by the ubiquity of, in terms of the toxic, that tells us, I think, how just how deep the environmental movement was getting. It was infiltrating all sorts of cracks and crevices. Right, in yeah, I mean, one of, the, one of the many surprises of this chapter is that Carson had a lot of supporters that were conservatives. Yes, yes. But the Fluoridation people really lit up her mailbox. <laughs> I mean, they, there was probably, if you were to stack the letters, they were probably a solid two inches thick and nothing but anti-Fluoridation stuff. She had a couple files on them, and um, but it really glommed on to her as somebody that they, who could champion their cause, and I think it was interesting as well. I mean, she's a, she's a kind of Democrat, as Linda Lear has pointed out, and she's certainly not an anti-statist. I don't think she would have much in common with them at all, but they saw her as somebody that they could trust. So, and, and, and as well, I wanted to complicate the kook idea a little bit. Yeah. You know, we we watch Doctor Strange and we all think about Jack Ripper and we think that is 
of fluoridation. It's some kind of John Birch nut. And then the truth is that it's a little more complicated than that. And so I, I wanted to look at it in the context of the time. And as you know, there's all kinds of anxieties about all kinds of substances in this period, not just Rachel Carson, Silent Spring, and DDT, but things like uh, uh, Strontium 90, Barry Commoner, St. Louis Anti-Nuclear Testing Group, and all sorts of folks. And I thought that context made the anti-fluoridation people seem much less crazy. Even if they weren't right, you could at least understand why they felt the way they did. Right, right. The pejorative that's often used uh, against climate change deniers today is anti-science. And I imagine that the anti-fluoridation folks would have scoffed at, at, at such a label being applied to them. Uh, I, I, think, I think they drew on at least what to them was right. was good, solid science in making their arguments. Now, whether it was or not is, is another question. Yeah, right. They tend to be very selective in their quoting, and they like doctors and dentists who, of course, are not scientists, actually. I, I found less anti-modernist stuff than some of the other folks who've written about fluoridation found. That it's a kind of revolt of the powerless against great faceless people who control their lives. And boy, I didn't see it that way. Uh, certainly not any more than opponents of DDT. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Or, 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 or it's not even, uh, you know, whatever. So. Mm-hmm. And so I, I guess we learned about the capaciousness and the widespread character of the environmental that we even have concerns about toxics, concerns about, for lack of a better phrase, environmental justice bodily environmental justice on the right as well as the left in this period. Yeah, that's really exciting and, and surprising. Uh, are, is there any way in which the history of anti-fluoridation um, might help us think about contemporary opponents of childhood vaccination? <laughs> well, that's a good one. That's a good one. You know, I, I, again, uh, I'm not an anti-vaxxer <laughs> either. I think they're, 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 they're tragically mistaken. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you and I both know that if you're going to lay money on what will destroy the human race, disease is probably... <laughs> A good one. For sure. Um, but well, what we learn about it, I, I get my, my inclination when I think about them is, is again, is, is they're wrong, but I'm sympathetic with, with the concerns, if not with the arguments. I can understand why they're anxious. There are lots of things out there, of course, today that were allegedly safe and turned out to be not so safe as we thought. And it's not crazy to worry about that sort of stuff. I think about the best you can do is try gently and clearly and without condescension, try to change opinions if you meet an anti-vaxxer. You may not have a lot of success. Some of these ideas are pretty deeply held, and I'm not sure how amenable they are to, to calm reasoned evidence. But the one thing I've learned is, is to respond to anti-vax folks with sympathy and with respect, if not with agreement. Because no matter how wrong they are in terms of their science, their fears and concerns are not about merit in the big picture. Those sort of those instincts, those instincts to be skeptical of both government mandates and, and big science and things oh. like that. Oh, sure. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking about very commoner again. You know, lots of people were assured early on that, that fallout was harmless. And, mm-hmm. of course, it turned out not to be the case. And there, there's something there's something instructive there, too. So it's not, it's not unprecedented. Things can, can turn out to have unintended consequences. And so, you know, I, I, again, I give the Andy Bax folks, I, give, I, I, I try to understand. I see with some sympathy, if not with agreement. Yeah. You conclude the book with a chapter on someone much more familiar to environmentalists, a hero to many environmentalists. I, I would think maybe uh, maybe especially uh, young environmentalists. I certainly remember being, you know, 20, 21 and 
all my friends and I reading Desert Solitaire, and I'm talking about Edward Abbey here, and, and I, I certainly read him thinking I myself was not a conservative and thinking that he was not a conservative. But it's certainly right. when you take a little closer reading and a little more time to understand the politics, it's, it's, it's quite obvious in some ways. Although, although I'd say Abbey's politics, even more than Goldwater's, um, elude easy categorization. And he doesn't even help us when he describes himself politically. You, you quote him as saying that he's, he's, at different times in his life, he described himself as a liberal Democrat, a wild conservative, a liberal and a libertarian and a Jefferson yeah. agrarian anarchist. Um, and so, so uh, how, how would you sketch out his politics? Where do you place him? <laughs> Good luck. Oh, boy. Well, this is, there's a reason why this chapter is <laughs> the longest one. Yeah, um, yeah. It takes so much time to, to sketch out exactly what his politics were. I do have to say, it uh, sounds like you and I were pretty similar. I think a lot of us had an adolescent Edward Abbey phase, mm -hmm. passionate if not always nuanced. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I still, I still maintain my my love for his writing while recognizing fully his warts, which were many. Um, I, I owned a Nalgene water bottle with a uh, bumper sticker that said "Drain Glen Canyon Dam." So. <laughs> I had a subvert the dominant paradigm. Oh, great, great. At one time. Anyway, when describing Abby's politics, they are an intense jumble of left and right. They're pretty heavily influenced by political thinkers and, and writers and philosophers of his period. I think C. Wright Mills was fairly influential on him. I think if I had to sum it up, Edward Abbey is deeply suspicious of concentrated power in whatever its forms. Mm -hmm. Mainly, he's suspicious of the state. He's also suspicious of corporations. He doesn't see them as being separate, in fact. They're sort of partners in, in crime. Anything that concentrates power, the groups acting on mass is going to give Edward Abbey the heebie-jeebies. Someone once asked me when I was given a paper, um, they said, I just don't get this Abbey guy. What environmental organization would he be associated with? Huh. And I laughed, and I said, that's the essence of Edward Abbey is to not be associated with organizations. <laughs> <laughs> But um, there, there's a kind of method to the madness of the fear, the fear of, of concentrated power. That's explaining why he doesn't like the government. He doesn't like capitalism. He doesn't like corporations. He doesn't like unions. He doesn't like, well, he doesn't like a lot of people, I guess. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, I think uh, he, he used to say, don't homogenize, balkanize. This mm -hmm. is uh, motto, so. Yeah, he's not, he's not uh, well-liked by... A famous environmental anarchist like Murray Bookchin. Um, right, why, why, right, is, right. Why, why was that? You think? I think probably because, at least on the surface, if you if you don't read deeply into Abbey, you may miss his political critique. Mm -hmm. I think folks like Bookchin, folks on the left, don't like Abbey because they feel like he doesn't recognize that environmental problems emerge from from power structure, from social structure. I would disagree, actually. I think he, 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 he did recognize that. His explanations were not quite the typical ones. I think as well because he was not without his, his racial and cultural biases. Yeah. Some people have gone back and forth whether Abby was a racist or not. I think he, I think he had elements of racism. I would, I would be kind of on the yes side of that. Mm -hmm. And that is, that's pretty unappealing. I think a lot of folks on the left really don't like that. I mean, Murray, Murray Bookchin called Abbey eco-fascist at one point, which I think is really interesting considering that, that Abbey hated the state so much, not yeah. just to be a fascist and hate government. <laughs> but, you know, there are lots of reasons. Yeah, I mean, I think we most most often associate Abbey, you know, with his thought with a, with a rabid defense of, of wild lands and, and, with, and with more than mm -hmm. a little 
misanthropy and, and like you say, racism in, in, in places. Yeah. And, and it's easy to see that yeah. and then just dismiss it as sort of boilerplate wilderness ideology and sort of this classic yeah. romantic escapism and everyone, you know, over, yeah. o- overlooking the human histories of these supposedly wild right. places and ignoring environmental struggles facing the places that people live. And, and, I, and I wonder, um, you say that would be a mistake. I do, th- I, do think that, I do think it's a mistake. And of course, I know, I know you know Bill's very famous piece, and, and, and I you know, read that a number of times in graduate school. People, this, uh, Bill doesn't usually do this, but people who, who sometimes rip off of, of the trouble with wilderness, they have a tendency to reduce all wilderness activists to a kind of rehash of, of Muir. They tend to assume that all wilderness activists must automatically ignore human history. Whenever they talk about wilderness, they read the Indians out, they read poor whites out, poor blacks out of out of, out of the history of the landscape. That they are middle class elitist. Right. That they're all all sorts of things. And I think um, Abney is one of many examples we could choose. I mean, none of I think none of that is really true. I mean, he's certainly not an elitist. He does not come from any kind of elite background. He's from the rural Appalachia. A very modest means, and I don't think as well that Abby would ever. But uh, for much as much as he talked about the rights of wilderness, the rights of nature, as much as he talked about wilderness, I think that's one of the reasons again why folks on the left don't like him because when you talk about wilderness, you seem to be excluding people, and they are people. Right. People the left, right? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. But I think Abby had a place for people in the wilderness. Now he wanted them to live in certain ways wanted them to do certain things and not do other things, but I think he had a place for people in the wilderness. I keep thinking about, I kept going back in during my research to this book, Fire on the Mountain, about a rancher who lives in the wild lands of New Mexico. I described it once in a paper I gave as a working wilderness. Hmm. It, it was wilderness. Yeah, he calls it wilderness, and the moment we get there are people there living. Yeah. Just, they're, they're just living in a certain style. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think so. Again, it's a little bit different than wanting no people and arguing for a, a wilderness without people right, and, and reading people out of it. I think that that's different. And also, more importantly, though, this Abbey's wilderness is most definitely a product of a consequence. A um, hundred years has gone by by this point since mm-hmm. uh, the first since wilderness activists have been at work, and that's a lot of history. And wilderness is like everything else. It, it's complex, it's nuanced, and it changes in circumstance. And so when I look at Abbey's wilderness, and I dig in it, it's very much a 20th century wilderness, very much a political wilderness. It's not John Muir. Uh, it has some similarities to it, and Thoreau and those sorts of folks, but it's also in some ways very, very different. I got very curious reading your book, what, what kinds of reactions you've gotten from the public when you present this research? Well, with Abbey, you know, not a lot. I usually get, I have lots of fans who who like him. I think they always like it when a professional historian takes Abby seriously. I do think that not a lot of professional historians have taken it seriously enough. People, you know, they read Desert Solitaire and they think they've got the Abby and I think don't know a lot of the details. And so I've had people be grateful for that. The Goldwater stuff gets, tends to get a lot more attention. People are always kind of shocked to, to, to hear it. <laughs> and they always ask the same question, which is what happened to conservative <laughs> environmentalists. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I always tell, well, you know, I have my ideas, but if you can answer that question definitively, write a book and write you'll a be book. a better scholar than me. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> can I, uh, like, like a public audience, can I unfairly ask you some questions about things that aren't in your book um, that, that came to mind, especially this past week with the headlines we've been seeing um, on two fronts? Um, one, in, in the wake of the AME um, shooting in Charleston, I got thinking about race and race and conservatism and, and something that historians identify as one of the uniting 
forces in the post-war conservative resurgence is is this shared opposition among different kinds of conservatives to the civil rights movement and to federal civil rights legislation. And you don't yeah, examine yeah. race and racism explicitly here, but but I wonder to what extent it might be lurking in the shadows of some of these folks. And a lot of them are talking about states' rights, and we know that often can be just a cover for defending white supremacy. And so, oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah. Um, that's a really interesting question, especially coming from the South, professionally where I am. Yeah. Um, a couple things. I, I didn't touch on, you know, Barry Goldwater, a lot of people don't know this, but um, he was a member of the NAACP, and he voted against the Civil Rights Act. Famously, he, he, yeah. most, he most definitely turned a blind political eye to uh, the troubles of his supporters in the South, if you understand what I'm saying. I think he, he knew darn well he was appealing to segregationists. But I didn't run across... I didn't, I didn't encounter race really in, in any of my in any of my subjects. It is interesting. Maybe I never come across a southern conservative environment. Huh? I always tend to be of the libertarian western variety. I mean, you're right that it's absolutely a, a, a one of the core definitions of conservatism in post World War II America is, is the opposition to the civil rights movement. And I didn't really encounter it much. And Abby, you got a little bit of that sometimes. You got a lot of criticisms of welfare. Mm-hmm. And things like that, which you can you can take as a veiled as a veiled criticism as a veiled criticism of the civil rights movement. And the, um, over- Abby's attitude towards Latin Americans and, and Native Americans, I think, had some uh, ugly racial undertones. Some of the fluoridation people were uh, active in that sort of realm, but I it, I didn't see that it influenced their any fluoridation feelings in any way. Occasionally, you would read and say a Klan publication, some suggestion that fluoridation was a Jewish conspiracy, that sort of thing. But other than that, it never really seemed to to be a part of their critique. Another major component of modern conservatism, you don't discuss it too much, is is the religious right, especially evangelical Christianity. Um, And, you know, of course, their their politics are not as dependably anti-statist as those of your subjects, you know. um, But Seeing as we're speaking just after the release of the Pope's encyclical letter, I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. It's, uh, at the time of you write your epilogue, you mentioned that evangelicals and creation care are stuck in the environmental fringe, quote unquote. And right, right. Um, I wonder, looking back at this history, what do you think might have to change about political Christianity or about the Republican Party or about environmentalism for us to see movement there? Well, that's, that's a good question. I mean, things like the creation care movement give me, give me some hope. What? Well, yeah, I've been thinking about this question for a while. What do I think is going to bring change? Demographic replacement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think is about the only thing. Conservatives, I guess, it's from my personal take, conservatism is intensely ideological these days. It's intensely any status. And this is, for lack of a better metaphor, this is religious intensely deeply held. My my own family are of this background, which is part of the reason I started writing it, writing this book. I wrote politically with the family a while ago, but I do understand the emotional motivations. I don't know that they will change, even in the face of growing environmental crisis like uh, climate change, in the face of, of, of things like the papal encyclical. I think it's going to have to be younger people. I take some hope for the way things have changed in terms of public acceptance of gay rights and gay marriage and legalization of marijuana. Mm-hmm. Maybe the environmental movement eventually goes that direction, but I think it'll be led by younger people. I think older conservatives are, are too vested. Yeah, and those in, are all really... ideology. You know, those can all be conceivable um, libertarian causes, yeah. Yeah, in certain elements of, of the conservative movement, there's a kind of, I don't mean to sound overly harsh, a kind of small government, private property, free market fetishism at work here that's not amenable to really any change. 
before we wrap up, I'd be remiss not to plug your most recent book, which was just published in January by the University of Georgia what? Press, and it's an edited collection. Oh, let's plug it. Yeah, let's plug it. It's, <laughs> here we go. Entitled The uh, Blue, the Gray, and the Green, Toward an Environmental History of the Civil War. Now, that's yeah. a war about which so much has been written. Um, I think uh, Eric Foner is fond of saying that there's been a book a day since Appomattox published with Civil War, <laughs> and it might not be far off. Yet, uh, that being so, though, environmental historians have only just begun to take a sustained look at it and... You have now in this collection, you've convened just about all the leading voices on that subject working in environmental history, and you've really produced what I think is really an exciting and teachable volume. But I wonder, how did, how did you find your way um, from the post-war back to the 19th century? <laughs> oh, well, you know, I went to school with Lisa Brady in graduate oh. school, and so she and I are close friends, and well, even years ago, when she first started on her Civil War project, I remember thinking, wow, that is really cool. That's a, <laughs> that's a good one. And, you know, then I went on to do my stuff with Abby and Goldwater and all those guys. Then I moved to the University of Georgia, and my two best friends in the department are the Civil War historians, Steve Berry and John Inskill. And a lot of this just got inspired, you know, those late-night conversations that you have about your perspective field at the local tavern, you know, that kind of thing. Steve Berry uh, just happened to have an interest in environmental history, kind of in the same way that, that, that I was starting to get an interest in Civil War history. It's, you know, it's in the air there in Georgia, and on the land, and then um, yeah. a lot of good graduate students doing a lot of good work. I, we, we just sort of it sort of emerged over all these conversations. Eventually, we decided that there had never been a conference on Civil War environmental history that we knew of, and why not find everybody that we possibly could and pull them together for a conference and see what happens. And so that's what we did in October 2011. And so the book started out as a series of conference papers, and the conference was titled The Blue, the Gray, and the Green, and that's sort of where it all originated. So. What do you find most exciting about the work that environmental scholars are doing on the Civil War? <laughs> I'm excited mainly because there's so much to be done. I mean, yeah. very, very little has been done. You know, um, when people first think about Civil War environmental history, they assume, oh, you're going to talk about the battlefield. Now the battlefield was blown apart. Yeah. And... So to me, I think, well, that's true, and that's also obvious, and that's kind of not what we're doing. I, I'm really excited about the potential for the big picture. Huh. Um, I, I want to know how nature was an, was an active agent in not just individual battles, but in shaping larger strategy. I want to know yeah. how weather affected the harvest, which then affected the ability to, to provision troops. I want to know about droughts and cold snaps and big picture stuff. I'm really, just personally, I'm really interested in, in mobilization and the ecological effects of mobilization. That's one yeah. direction that's really going to be uh, interesting. Mostly, though, I'm excited for our potential to contribute to larger discussions of, of both the coming of the war and then things like reconstruction afterwards and memory and memorialization and that kind of stuff. You know, if you think about it, I mean, Civil War, as you know, is, is the most important I guess, a single event in, in American history. And it's astonishing to me that environmental historians, when we think about the birth of conservation, we think about the birth of the wilderness movement, you know, it's 20, 30 years later, that I'm aware of, none of us have, have ever sat down and wondered if the former affected the latter. Did the Civil War not affect those things? I, I can't imagine that's not true. So I'm really, I'm interested, I know personally, I'm excited about, the, let's call it the long Civil War. When you flash forward 50 years, what effect did the Civil War have on our emerging environmental outlook? What a great question. There must be many rich stories waiting to be told about that. Real quick, I'm going to plug a book I just I just reviewed. A guy named Adam Dean has written a book called 
called Agrarian Republic, in which he talks about how much anti-slavery ideas were rooted in the northern agrarian experience. The yeoman farmer culture, for that's the majority of northerners came from, was a really important factor in shaping how they viewed South and how they viewed slavery. It kind of takes the soil and puts it in tree soil, huh. as I said in my, in my review. I really think that's ideal. That's the kind of stuff. It gets me excited. It's the, you know, it's the direction we ought to be heading. I think it kind of fits. So. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, I, I really want to thank you so much for your time today. Oh, no, thank you. I enjoyed it. It was great. Once again, that was Brian Allen Drake, senior lecturer in the history department at the University of Georgia and author of Loving Nature, Fearing the State, Environmentalism and Anti-Government Politics Before Reagan, as well as the brand new edited collection, The Blue, The Gray, and The Green, Toward an Environmental History of the Civil War. I'm Brian Hamilton, and this has been Edufex, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Visit us online at edgeffects.net and follow Che on Facebook or on Twitter at UWCHE. Face one and it's a drug, don't swallow too much Just a pea-sized bit on the brush It's not a nutrient, not a central mineral Research for yourself, my people But the main point about choice is out of sight Force of me to medicate, fringes on my civil rights My body, my business, about what goes in it Having choice is what makes this country worth living The chemicals used are not pharmaceutical grade You know, they just don't believe this when they